Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Today's episode is the next in our series of profiles of emerging investment firms. In these interviews, we dive deep into the various components of building an investment firm that can compound. Our guest on the show today is Greg Dean, the founder and lead investor of Toronto-based Langdon Equity Partners. Greg founded Langdon in 2021 after successful stints at Fidelity and Cambridge Global Asset Management. Langdon describes itself as an active and engaged owner of world-class smaller companies. The firm has assembled concentrated portfolios of companies with enterprise values between $500 million and $5 billion that are cash generative and are run by long-term oriented executives. In this conversation, we discuss why Greg wants the Langdon office to be more like a library than a train station, his definition of a compounder and the unique challenges of managing such companies within small cap strategies, how Langdon has tried to position itself differently from other small cap focused firms, the kinds of mistakes that prevent companies from realizing their full compounder potential, and the cultural elements that are most important when building a new investment firm. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Greg Dean of Langdon Equity Partners. When we first spoke, you told me that instead of occupying the 17th floor of an office building, you rented out a two-story building that would house everyone. Can you talk about why you did that? Uh, yeah, I put a lot of thought into that. Um... You know what? After 15 years of investing and then taking a year off of gardening leave, you spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what is the environment that is going to help foster investment excellence? Um, because I think doing a bunch of things a little bit better is how you win long term. It's not sort of any one thing. And how you work and you know who's in the space, I thought was one of those sort of really uh, important, underrated decisions. And so... Um, couple things. One was I knew, you know, to deliver Hall of Fame returns, you can't think like everybody else. Um, so it was, it was critical. We just relocate out of downtown where a lot of that sort of commodity thinking existed and where brokers could come knock on your door or show you stuff just because you were nearby some other meeting. Um, and then the other one was just ideally somewhere quiet, somewhere where you, you know, where you could, you could do a lot of really good thinking and not necessarily act. And along those lines, you also said you wanted your office to be more like a library versus a train station. What does that mean to you? And, and maybe, you know, you, you expand that, that, that analogy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, thinking about or even visualizing those two spaces, they're very different, right? So uh, I felt like I grew up at the train station uh, in this business and, and I, I loved it at that stage of my career, you know, just companies, you know, 10 companies in. Uh, you know, down at South Station in Boston. So I guess the literal train station, um, the, the Fidelity office in Boston was next door. Um, and it was awesome. You could decide which meetings you wanted to attend. There were typically many meetings going on at any one time. Um, but I think as you get into situations where you're 
you're making investment decisions as opposed to you know purely conducting investment research you know you get paid to think in this business and infrequently act and i think the industry is sort of set up the opposite the 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 other stakeholders in the industry they get paid to act so they're always enticing you to act and that often takes away the ability or the time that you have to think and so um the train station there's no shortage of places uh where you can go or people that you can go there with and pretty much everybody's selling you stuff like i said um and all those things i think ultimately distract you on your investment journey so the library is just somewhere where you can envision a lot of deep thinking and uh that was you know really important we don't have bloomberg on in uh the lobby which is i know something we connected on in a previous conversation stuff like that we just try to make the environment conducive to the type of work that we think we get paid to do. And, and before we hit record, we were talking about some of the people you worked with at Fidelity. I'd love to hear, I mean, you, you there, obviously there's a big contrast between what you're trying to set up at Langdon and a huge shop like Fidelity, but what are some of the beneficial things or the key learnings, the things that that stick with you that you took away from Fidelity that you think can be helpful as you know, you're, you're plotting Langdon's course over the next decade? Yeah, great question. Um, a lot of things is is the short answer. You know, there aren't many firms in the world that six months out of school would hand you a credit card and a sticky note with call it 10, 10 tickers and basically say, you know, we don't need to see you again until, you know, you, you have an opinion on these 10 businesses and, you know, take six months, take three months, but don't take a year because by then we'll probably have brought somebody else on to do the work. Um, so just the amount of... Um, I'll call it like autonomy and responsibility, but also like the amount of motivation that that catalyzed for me, that there was nothing in my way except me and my ability to kind of build the relationships with these teams, um, get to see the assets. And if that was important to me, like they don't really require you to do it one way. And often you're running a meeting. I was covering consumer and infrastructure, you know, 15 years ago or so. And uh, you'd have PMs joining the meeting, all who have totally different styles. And that was also really interesting just to see all the different ways in which investment excellence can be delivered and, no and appreciating that there isn't one way. Nobody there was trying to have me do it their way or one way. And I was pretty open-minded and curious. So I feel like I picked up a lot of things. You'd have some people just kind of flipping through trade journals, you know, every month they got every single trade journal known to humankind. And that was, you know, they never read sell side research and they just felt like they could spot trends and identify themes. And then you had other people who had, you know, every cell was nine decimal places in their model. And they ran these like very intense quantitative screens and analyses of businesses and the output. And so um, coming out of school with a math background, you know, you, you I've kind of, I feel like I've tried lots of different shoes on, before ultimately deciding here at Langdon, which ones I think uh, are timeless and, and like I said earlier, just conducive to delivering that long-term investment excellence. And I know I, another thing that you've thought a lot about was team building and creating a culture uh, at Langdon that would last. And when we originally spoke, you mentioned to me that your seed investor, which is Pinnacle out of Australia, uh, told you to get your year five team together today, as opposed to in year five. Why was that so important to you? And and what does it say about um, in how different Pinnacle is as a partner? Well, I can tell you, after talking to a lot of different potential partners and also having just been a student of this industry for a long time, there aren't a lot of 
people like them or firms like them. Um, you know, just their their DNA is to take minority stakes at e- either at the seed stage or at the very early stages of a business uh, that's scaling up. Um, but it's critical that they back the team, they back the asset class, and then they back the vision for where that business ultimately longer term could go. Um, yeah. In fact, for me, having really only had the opposite problem in my career was, you know, go raise a billion dollars and then we'll let you hire a junior person or prove prove that you can deliver out performance by yourself, essentially, and then we'll allow your team to scale. Like, that's just not how business works. That's not how investing works. You know, the idea that you would say to Apple, you know, uh, get $100 million in revenue from a product that doesn't exist yet, and then we'll let you hire the engineers and the salespeople to potentially build that product and scale and commercialize that product. Like, it's backwards. But for whatever reason in the investment business, it's not backwards. It's, it's way more common to tell people to go find the revenue before you're allowed to, to bring on the expenses. And so um, I, um, I just wanted there to only be one reason we failed. If we failed, it was because of the returns and the service that we deliver for our clients. I didn't want it to be stuff outside of my control or stuff that I don't feel uniquely qualified to contribute to. And so um, we talk a lot before we invest in a company about how to break that company. What are the ways in which that company could be impaired? Uh, Langdon can really only become impaired if we if we fail to deliver on that promise of delivering exceptional returns and exceptional service. And, and I think a firm like Pinnacle is the critical stakeholder to make sure that we can stand by that claim. That's really interesting. I mean, the chicken and the egg problem in investing is, is as you highlighted, and basically the inability to, to invest in R&D before you have revenue is really, is, is really I mean, it could be the reason that firms fail. So that's, that's a really interesting take. So, you know, this, this podcast is called Compounders. And everyone has a different definition of what a compounder is. Um, and, and it's something that I've thought a lot about. And I know you've thought a lot about. How would you describe, you know, a Langdon compounder uh, to you? And, and what is, you know, and has that evolved over time as, as you've moved from, from different investment firms? Yeah, it's, it's certainly evolved. Um, and I think I, I have only a little bit to add to what I think are pretty commonplace definitions. You know, obviously high returns on invested capital. Um, and high rates of invested capital growth. I think people often miss that second part. They're just super focused on the returns and, and neglect that the business may or may not be shrinking uh, or may not be investing sufficiently to sustain the rate of growth. Um, so for us, it's actually a business that we can understand um, that's able to scale both its human and financial capital at above average rates for decades. So I think the people side of that, again, is uh, is is... It's not uncommon, but it's not as common as people who squarely focus on the math. And one problem with true compounders uh, is that if you buy them uh, with a billion dollar market cap and it really works, they don't still they don't stay small caps for very long. And I think it's one of the you know it's one of the issues of running smaller company focused strategies. So how in your history have you dealt with successful companies becoming too large for a small cap portfolio? Do you have specific sell discipline? Do you do you do you look for investors? Do you you know do you coach your investors that you're going to hold things for longer even if they look optically too large for the strategy? How have you thought about that? Yeah, we've we've we 
in order to kind of stay true to the art form of investing in smaller companies, um, we're not going to do what some have done in other asset classes where they basically have just created these, you can think of not to pick on venture, but in the last number of years before the world changed, there were some venture firms saying, oh, we're going to hold, you know, super, like very small stakes in public companies now because they're still great, you know, but their job was series A or, you know, seed or pre-seed. And, and that was sort of what they were hired to do on, uh, on behalf of their clients. And so for us, we talk about a range of 500 million to 5 billion is sort of our, our time of first purchase or our initial investment. Um, and we don't want clients to one day look at their portfolio, their LinkedIn portfolio and see a bunch of $25 billion companies. It's a, it'd be a champagne problem if that was the case and we, if we bought them small enough. So part of what we uh, have tried to do is make sure we identify them early enough so that, you know, given the amount of work we're going to do up front, we don't want to benefit from a good back half 2023. We want to benefit from a good decade, uh, a good half decade. So finding these businesses small enough, I think, is important. And we've set, you know, the the research team uh, here up in such a way that we think we have a good shot at doing that. Um, but ultimately, you have to let them go at some point. Um, it doesn't mean they're not going to go on to be great mid-cap businesses and eventual large-cap businesses. We have lots of situations like that. Um, but I, I do think the way we work is much more conducive to diligencing smaller companies. And you have to decide early on how true to form you want to stay uh, versus, you know, diligencing a $100 billion business versus a $500 million business. Like, I'm just not sure we're set up to do um, the second one or the sorry, the first one very well. And that's an interesting thread. What do you think? What do you think is qualitatively or quantitatively different about the research process when you're when you're looking at smaller companies? And then you know maybe you can just also discuss some of the hallmarks that you come across of these companies that you think have the potential to be much larger. I think one because I, I did you know Fidelity was very much market cap weighted. You know you're you're you start with your large caps and they're moving around so much money that it's it's essential that you get your large caps right. And many PMs there will say I don't care if you ever look at anything under a billion dollars. I probably can't buy it. So, so I've actually done the whole gamut of size, and and but part of this is just personal preference, personal bias. What are you curious about? How have you built, uh, you know, your own blueprint for success? And and a big one for me is people. And I think all, like the larger the company, the more likely that business is run by systems and processes, and people have far less ability to move the needle as a small group individually. And so, you know, you, and that's by design, like large organizations need to be set up in such a way that they're too big to fail and that no one person can usurp the identity or the strategy or the reputation of that business. And that comes with it a, a different risk profile often than smaller companies. So I think the way we're set up and the type of work we do is we build relationships, not just with the asset, we build relationships. And again, not just with the CEO, if it's a sales-led business, then it's probably the top 25 people in the sales team. Or if it's a manufacturing business, we've seen, you know, 75% of their fixed PP&E, wherever it is in the world. Like part of why we needed a pinnacle, because it's really expensive to do the type of diligence that we do. You're not just behind the computer waiting for, you know, annuals and quarterlies and giving them a good read and then, you know, making investment decisions. We're getting out there and, and building these relationships and, and seeing things for ourselves. One of the core principles here is trust but verify and and a piece of that is the only way you can verify at times is to have access 
And I don't think all large companies are set up to give access to, you know, investors beyond the sort of like mega trillion dollar plus managers. I'm sure they have no shortage. Certainly at Fidelity, we had no shortage of anybody, anytime. You know, we need you in the office. We're going to come to you. Crazy stories. But um, so that access, while valuable, is not necessarily impactful if you're not going to get any information that doesn't help you build your mosaic. So uh, long answer, but I think that um, people matter, matter more to smaller companies. And I think it's also nice when you can hire a company to do something. And then in 10 years, you you still just need it to do what it's currently doing. You're not hiring it to be something different or to be in six other regions or to have some vastly different profile than 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 it has today. And when you're dealing with $100 billion, trillion dollar companies, the law of large numbers becomes a huge impediment to being able to just hire that business to, to take its market share from 4% of LTL trucking to 14%, not from 61%. And then the you know, DOJ gets involved if it gets above 70. That's a different game. Yes, you're preaching to the small mid cap choir here as this has been the focus of my career. And, and I, I share a lot of those sentiments. And, and so we've talked about, you know, some of the elements that that you look for in, in successful companies. What about the opposite? My guess is you've come across a lot of smaller companies in your career um, that you initially thought had a chance to be compounders. But, you know, something got in the way. So what are some of those things that you think have prevented certain companies from reaching their full potential? And I think this is kind of an almost like a uniquely small company problem that, you know, that you always have to, when you're looking at smaller companies, you have to be really relatively cognizant of. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly for me, I, when I when I started in this business, I was younger than most executives had years of experience in their company. So, you know, I'd leave a meeting being like, okay, they've been CEO for 27 years and I'm 26 years old, you know, and, and so just having sort of the courage to ask the hard question or to say, I don't understand what that means. Can you explain it to me again? And in that process, one of the things I came to realize is some, first of all, decision making at a company is still very much human behavior human biases, like there's a lot of psychology that you can apply to making investment decisions and and business decisions. And I think a common one that kind of catches people on their on their uh, journey towards success is short-term thinking or short-term gratification. You know, a lot of these people, these these potentially, you know, very talented individuals, they see a corner or a shortcut or somebody tells them this is the the faster way, the better way, and they outsource a bunch of the decision-making or the thinking to someone that they trust, but maybe someone that they shouldn't have trusted. So it could be overpaying for an acquisition, hiring a management consultant to tell you the answer when really they don't know the answer, um, but they're paid to give an answer. Uh, and, and I think beyond short-term thinking, short-term gratification, um, just management teams that are unwilling or unable to do the hard thing. You know, saying no when everybody else is saying yes, that's really hard. And uh, sometimes saying yes when everybody else is saying no is really hard. So what I've seen more often than not with these smaller companies, and, and this is why we diligence the assets separate from the people, could be a great business with all the characteristics you'd want in a, in a long-term compounder, but is that the right team? Do they have the humility, the work ethic, the experience, 
the knowledge and also just like is the structure, you know, common question in every one of our first meetings is how are your people organized? It's a pretty, pretty dumb question by traditional standards, but we learned so much about that question and how the business is set up. Is it the CEO with six direct reports and each of those six direct reports are one of the key functions within the business and are they regionally allocated? Are they set up in one major HQ? Um, how long have they been there? Where did they come from? Like just, we map it out. Like the org chart is a nice slide, but we, we bring it to life. Typically it takes you know more than the first meeting just to get that understanding. And what we're trying to do is make sure that the people and the and the and the structure are set up to not get in the way of the ability of that business that that business has to compound. And and I guess in addition to what you're told by management, which you should always be somewhat skeptical of, I think, is as an investor, what other outlets have you found to, to do true diligence on people that you I mean you're never going to know 100, percent but gives you some comfort that these people have the right north star. They have the right skill set. They understand capital allocation. What what are their avenues do you typically pursue to be able to get comfortable with those elements? Um, it's a mosaic. It's a many. Like I'd love to say it's it's A, B, or C. A big one that I think has emerged quite um, frequently in our toolkit is LinkedIn. Whether or not you actually reach out to these people, you can actually start to see. You know, so every, I'm X Danaher. I'm X Boeing, I'm X Coca-Cola or, you know, Procter and Gamble, if it's a consumer business, what does that actually mean? Does it mean you were there for seven months in a, you know, like a quasi apprenticeship role? Did you, did you have a P&L that you were responsible for? Did you have 200 direct reports? Like, what did you actually do? So now, you know, we'll ask them, they'll give us an answer. We can go away and figure stuff out. Um, and, and that has been in, ideally we even get former employees, common connections, where we're able to say, well, what was it like working for this person? How well do you know this person? What's her, what sort of leader were they? Um, and so, you know, we're seeing this more and more because actually COVID has catalyzed a ton of management turnover. So people who just said, you know, my priorities have changed or I want to be closer to home. I don't want to be traveling, like tons of different reasons. And, and now with all these new management teams, sort of people moving around, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, I'm, I knew that person from this other place. Or they also sit on the board of this other business in Germany or in France or the UK, whatever. And we're able to kind of just follow these threads and we're not in a rush. So sometimes it can take months to get real valuable insight. Um, but that's one tool that I think has increasingly been helpful to just map out a lot of these these structures and validate that you know there was actual impact had at some of these places and not just, you know, a, a logo on a resume. Um, another one that I think is, uh, ha has been important is, you know, we, we are known for asking like some pretty different and direct questions in, uh, in our meeting. So, and, and to be honest, I, I had listened to a few episodes of this podcast um, because there's overlap with some of the companies that you'd interviewed and uh and management teams that we admired and 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 owned at different points and you know they'll all say you know those those guys are very direct and very well prepared so we, we we often early on when getting to know business we don't like to ask questions we don't already know the answer to we're interested in how you answer it we know what you're going to say but the follow-up is critical and the follow-up to the follow-up and then trying to catch you in a situation that maybe makes you a little uncomfortable. How do you address it then? 
Is it the same as you addressed it when you were on CNBC and were totally in sales mode? And or or did it sound different? Or in 2017 when you first said that thing, how similar is it to what you're saying now? Um, you know, I think just having a deep data set and the experience in that asset class for a number of years is is it becomes a weapon over time as well. Yes, yes. I mean, I think if couldn't be couldn't agree more in terms of the differentiation or the differentiated way that you can get information out of people and the valid, like how valuable meetings can be if you ask the right questions. Right. And that's, you know, I think it takes a long time to figure that out as an investor. And, and, you know, this, this venue, the podcast is actually a good way of doing that because I start to be much more granular and, and that not ask questions that are easily answered with a boilerplate canned response. And that's, as you know, challenging, right? Because a lot of people are really well coached. Um, so you know the 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 whole the whole world of compounders, um, you know, kind of got really hyped up in 2021, and hashtag never sell became very popular on Twitter and even in financial press. So we talked a little bit about your sell discipline. I mean, you're not going to have a 25 billion dollar stock in, in small cap. But what other kind of things cause you to sell a company that you've already deemed a compounder, um, you know, or that you previously deemed a compounder, and that you tip that you like, but um, don't you don't think has a place in the portfolio anymore? Yeah, I mean, the best reason to sell is it's too big. That's like, like I said, a, a high class problem. But there's way uh, more uncomfortable reasons too. Sometimes you're just wrong. You either got the, the thesis wrong, or you rated the management team too highly or you know significant turnover in the management team causes you to question if the business is as you see it because at the end of the day we don't work there we're not on the board you know we have to respect the fact that we're getting a piece of what's true and we're doing our very best to build a rich mosaic of of truth but it isn't like indisputably true and and the financials i think often and this is where some of our questions come from you know the, the adage of like Warren Buffett will say, start at the back of any release or report or start at the bottom, you know, just doing that consistently over time, you start to learn what are some of the ways in which I can validate if this person is, you know, true to form, or if they're constantly telling me the best of what's possible in, in the future. Um, and so, you know, if we're wrong and we don't have the conviction necessary to, to sustain that investment, like it isn't all our money. So the responsibility to make decisions and act with, you know, integrity, but also intellectual honesty is sort of top of mind for all of us. And if you, if there's a gap in between like your perception and the reality, we try to aggressively or, or very tenaciously dig into that to figure out in, in a matter of days, you know, what side are we ultimately going to fall on and then make the decision necessary. So we'll sell because we were wrong. Um, sometimes we'll sell because we, we, we trust a lot of what they're saying, but we can't verify it. You know, there's just some businesses and ideally we're not going to invest in these types of businesses, but sometimes you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you business model shift or regions that they enter evolve. And, and now you're, you, you just, you can't get the good industry data necessary to validate. Like every management team is going to tell you they're going to grow eight to 10%. 8 to 10% top line with some margin expansion and maybe a share buyback and we're going to deliver 10 to 15. And it's like, okay, what's the industry growing? And no business has one industry that they serve or one region. So it's not in a vacuum that easy to track down. 
And so, um, you know, often we're, we're trying to find rich sources of, of, you know, data that are independent of the management team giving us that information. And, you know, if we find an industry that long-term, which to us is like 10, 20, 30 years is growing 4%. And this management team says, oh, we're going to continue to grow 12%. Okay. How long can you do that for? We can do that for a long, long time. And we just do the simple math and we're like, okay, so you'll be, you know, 92% of the industry and in 12 years how how's that i don't do you think that's possible and you get the look of like uh, well maybe we'll have to look at new countries or we'll have to you know start targeting customers that are smaller than our enterprise customers that we've historically had success with and so it's like oh okay so you're gonna have to be an smb software provider at some point let's go down that conversation thread um but when we see those sorts of situations where we're going to ultimately end up having to hire the business to do something they've never done before we find ourselves maybe there after we bought it. We'll we'll have to sell if we can't verify or validate that that's uh, you know going to be a good use of shareholder shareholder capital. Um, and then sometimes access is just not great. So you know management teams typically make themselves really available when the news is great, and then when the news isn't so great, you just can't get them. And we'll we'll never we'll do anything. So like if we have to fly to your house or we have to meet at some middle location like there's not really a, a reason a good reason for us to not be able to to get to sit with you and to sit with your team um but if we've tried now for a number of months and the reasons just keep growing and growing and growing like oh, i'm in toronto but you know we don't want to start the day that early oh you're in london um but actually i'm going to be out of town that week and if this goes on for a period of time often that causes us to start to question like why are why are they not available they were very available at a 52-week high, and here we are. So um, stuff like that can often impact the decision to sell as well. And you talk about being direct and asking you know, kind of differentiated questions. In my experience, you know, there is some benefit to helping your companies as an investor. And I don't, I'm not saying necessarily through activism, but maybe some suggestivism, which is kind of how I would con- consider myself. Where does that fit in terms of the Langdon structure and strategy? Do you are you behind the scenes talking about corporate governance and capital allocation and compensation, or is that not necessarily part of your DNA? No, I mean we we, we define ourselves as very active and engaged owners of world class smaller companies. That's what we that's what we stand for, and so um, but it's very deliberately not activism. You know, we are not interested in investing in a company. Uh, that isn't well run or with a management team that we don't admire and respect or think in all likelihood will do a fantastic job for our clients doesn't mean we don't find ourselves in those situations over time. Um, So I think your point about adding value to management teams is a really underrated one because often why we have the access and the relationships that we do is because they know when they meet with us, they're going to learn something. And that's not coming from a place of ego. It's coming from a place of preparation and the fact that we have a global lens. And most of these companies only operate in their country or only operate in their on their continent. I've never met, like we own a business in Denmark that's a large multi-beverage manufacturer, large by our standards, $4 billion. They're not sitting with Heineken. They're not sitting with ABI. They can't go meet Carlsberg. We do because we want to understand the industry. And the business that we own is such a small piece of that industry. We have to go meet those other players to understand how the whole industry is is functioning. And so when we come back and say, hey, you know, we've met Heineken 
25 times in 15 years. That's the most uh, positive they've ever been on industry pricing. They go, oh, interesting. Did they give any sort of regional, you know, conveyance there? Or was it just sort of like a broad statement? And who did you meet? Was it IR? Was it CEO? Was it, you know, COO? And so we do think of building relationships sort of like as a give and take. And ultimately, you're not going to, like in most people's personal lives, if you have people in your life that only take, you don't have as much uh, time for them. So we, we, we both give and take in those relationships. And, you know, we only own 27 companies. So it's not like we're out there trying to build relationships with a thousand different firms. So it's not that hard to actually have value to add to that small group of, uh, of management teams that we respect. And then um, I think that ultimately ends up being one of the ways in which we can add value because you just get more out of people who feel like you prepared for that conversation or for that interaction. They have more time for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think a lot of our brethren in the industry don't spend enough time before meetings. And so (laughs) there's a a very low bar for us to jump over in in, in a sad way. Well, look, Uh, we were in, I was in Manchester last week, 7 billion pound uh, business. I, I don't know if I should say their name because I would be outing their investor relations team, but they said since COVID has ended, we were the fifth investor to come visit them. FTSE 100 or, or 150, um, probably been a business that's been public for seven years. It's maybe tripled in seven years. It has 95% market share. It's uh, an online auto marketplace business. And to hear that, you know, five is, is wild. But that speaks to, you know, they're probably super available on Zoom. You know, they also are a pretty large dominant monopoly. So you look at the numbers and you say, oh, I'm buying the numbers. I don't really need to go diligence the team, understand the working environment. Um, But, you know, all of their customers are in the UK too. So if you're not going over to meet them, you're probably not doing any customer analysis either, which um, ultimately is, we think, a gap in the knowledge. Sure. And... Moving into kind of philosophy and and how you've how you've evolved as an investor, I love the idea that a stock can be a mentor for people. So, are there any companies that you've invested in during your career that taught you lessons about the power of compounding that you'll never forget, and and maybe have even informed your investing style as you as you're building Langdon? Yeah, one one of those lessons that I think about every day is, you know, bad news needs to travel faster than good news. It just has to. And so whether it's your own business now that you know, I'm I'm obviously heavily involved in building this business, what do you think I said to every single person on the team in every department? Doesn't mean we're going to like to have that conversation or we might not like what we're what what the result was, but it's important that we're we're all across that information as as real time as we can. Um and so that's kind of where, um, so that business is a very large IT outsourcing business, um, which initially started here in Canada, a company called CGI, um, but is now very global. And they had every regional VP of every single business line sit in front of each other on a quarterly basis, presenting on the same six KPIs. And I think it's one of the first businesses that I ever looked at as well, that we had to, dis- had to distinguish between being an owner and an ownership mentality because that business really only had like two large employee owners, the CEO and the chairman, but something like 48,000 of the 52,000 employees were owners. 
And so, and if all that matters is their ownership interest in that business is really material to them. It doesn't need to be material to the shareholder registry for the right behaviors to be incentivized and the right decision-making architecture to be in place. And so, you know, just as we got to understand this business and realized like there's probably not going to be much that happens in their industry that they're not across on immediately. And they've set up an, an environment and a culture where they are very open and, and respectful of, of, of bad news and willing to take bad news and use it as a motivation and not as a shaming tool in such a way that bad news is kind of hidden and kept below the radar. And so shockingly, they've become a very agile business that can go acquire other people's problems and fix them. And typically when you're an acquisitive business and you're buying underperforming companies, you're typically paying much lower entry multiples, but you better have that DNA to, to fix these companies. And they've now been doing that. They started only in Quebec and then they went Quebec to Ontario and then they went Canada to the US and then North America to Europe and Europe to Asia. So they have proven that the model scales. Um, but I think what was critical in that situation was they needed the decision-making architecture to scale as well. And so, you know, earlier on when I mentioned the human capital needs to scale, it's really hard to build a 50,000 person organization that thinks like it did when it was 50 people, like really hard. And not that many companies are going to be successful doing that. And so part of our job is to figure out which ones will and which ones won't. And going along that theme a little bit, um, I, I, I like the idea of, uh, you know, what is a quintessential Langdon stock that embodies almost all of the elements that you look for? You know, it, obviously, this is this is a podcast where we're not going to go deep into individual ideas, but I love an example of like what's something that you own now that you think embodies everything that you look for in, in a business and a management team. Uh, well, Royal Unibrew in Denmark would be one. Um, it's a management team that has been there for a long time, so. Often, like in the investing world, if you take PMX and you put them on track record Y, and then you go to sell them into market Z, it's like, I don't know what I'm buying. Like, is it their, is it this person's approach? Is it the historical pool of capital? Like, and, and you know, we struggle with that too. If it's like this, you know, world-class individual or team, but they're jumping onto this other asset, but there isn't, you can't go audit the historical output of the asset uh, in conjunction with the team. That can be difficult. So, you know, in, in Unibrew's case, management tenure has been pretty long. Board tenure has been sufficiently long. We don't like we don't like to see it too long, but sufficiently long that you can actually audit the track record. We we talk about, you know, value investors want to look at the last 10 years. Growth investors want to look at the next 10 years. And we're like in between where we want to look at the last five and probably the next five. And so a business like Unibrew allows us to do that. Um, they're in a number of different markets. They're in both cons uh, carbonated soft drink, alcohol, uh, juice, water, and and also, um, you know, Nordics, Italy, Baltics. They've just actually made an acquisition here in Canada of a, of a brewer, which was interesting, you know, and not to digress, but their thesis there was, you know, it used to, we used to charge a premium for imported on the bottle. This is sort of like pre, you know, the craft explosion. Um, but now the price points commanded by a lot of these local craft players are the same as the imported's, if not higher. Why are we shipping water on water? Why don't we localize our production much closer to our customer base, which is going to save on freight, logistics, um, and in a lot of cases, energy costs as well, because North America has structurally lower um, costs of supply of energy, which is a big input into you know, 
brewing as well as glass manufacturing where a lot of these bottles are a lot of these beers are are consumed in so um they're just as operationally focused as you could want from a management team like they're not sitting behind their spreadsheets trying to run their business they're out in the field the decision making is very decentralized every region has its own senior leader they meet frequently um best practices are shared but they are not sort of mandated uh and and Really, what they've tried to do is take admin out of the field, but not autonomy and decision making. And I think that's a delicate balance. It sounds like a great soundbite, but we've seen companies go too far in both directions, like leaving all the responsibility into the field. And then the headquarters gets the numbers at the end of the quarter and they're like, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to have to guide down because we didn't know things were going that poorly. Uh, and vice versa, the command and control from the center is also not a great fit. So we're very open minded investors, but I think that is a, you know, compounded invested capital north of 10% for 10 years at a very high return on invested capital. So their ROICs today um, would be a little bit lower than they were called five, six years ago because of some uh, acquisitions that they've made. But when you can when you can earn a 20 ROIC on a billion dollars, uh, it's a pretty powerful compounder from that 20 ROIC on a hundred million dollars. Like those are the real exceptional businesses is like the sneaky rate of invested capital growth with no decay on the return on that invested capital. Those have been the ones that have been the magic compounders that are in industries that, you know, we can understand quite easily. Interesting. And, you know, getting back to the culture question, which was where we started a little bit when we're talking about where you're situated and, and, you know, the, the kind of investment uh, ambiance that you'd like to create you know, you've been involved in some building some highly successful investment management firms in the past. So I'm interested in what firm level and cultural elements you think are required to build a business that compounds within uh, the investment management industry. I don't think any question has probably kept me up more in the last three or four years than than that, because no one will, will uh, I think it's very hard for, for people to build anything of significance alone. So by definition, you need a great team, a great group of capable people who all are going to have to leave great jobs with tons of upside and upward mobility who love their boss and are paid really well. And so to, to create that environment is one thing, but then you need to sustain that environment uh, over long periods of time because to, to compound an investment business um, over long periods of time requires a lot of people and also a lot of experience and a lot of time spent working together and and I think um, one of the the things that I think has helped is uh, I've you know over the couple firms that I've worked at uh, I I was always very involved in recruiting and I think early on like a lot of people you make some very obvious in hindsight mistakes like you want to hire yourself right like oh somebody who's like this and like this and like this and came from there and then you go oh man. That didn't work. And, and even worse is you maybe manage other people or work with other people the way you would want other people to work with you, which also is not great. So it's almost like, you, you know, you, and this is sort of how I found myself in, in, in the investment business is I tried 15 things and found out I didn't like them. And then this was the first thing that I tried and I went, okay, I think I could, you know, spend my whole career at this and still feel like I have a lot to learn. That was very interesting and motivating. And so when it comes to scaling talent and developing talent and working with talent, being open-minded, but also decisive is a really delicate balance. Like you can't, 
you can't be willing to to be open-minded on everything or else nothing gets done. And if you are very closed-minded, I think uh, you don't get the right type of people to work with you. So for me personally, I've wanted to surround myself with people who I, who are, are inspiring and who inspire me and people who ultimately I think are going to make me better. And so I took that view when I graduated and I said, I'm going to go join this huge firm in Boston when I had an offer from a, a, a much smaller entrepreneurial hedge fund and their pitch to me was, you know, you'll be making decisions here right away because we're not very big and you're going to be instrumental in our success. And weirdly, I found myself saying, like, I don't know anything. I don't know if I trust myself to make decisions. I don't know if you should want me to be contributing to the output of this firm right now. Like, And so I want to go somewhere where I can just be a sponge. And, and in my mind, I think at that time, I thought, OK, I'll be a sponge for some period of time and then I'll be able to offer people a lot. And I find myself still in sponge mode. And so collecting a group of people who are also still in sponge mode at different stages of their career, who all, you know, one of the things we talk about is slope versus elevation. You can hire somebody at a very high point of elevation, but if their slope isn't sufficiently high, they're going to get lapped, certainly here. So we want people with a very high slope, um, people who are super curious and passionate about investing, and then people who ultimately want to work collaboratively. I think one of the things we've done really well is we've institutionalized collaboration. So, you know, at least at least two, usually three people will look at a business before we invest. So it's not by committee, but it's also not an individual sport. And I think that I've been part of teams where you go and you do six months of work and then you come pitch it to the investment committee and it's like everybody against you. And that's their job is to push back and say no and ask hard questions. But that's not really going to create the right environment for people to want to support each other and help make each other better. So um, what we've done is said, okay, you you lead this region. So if it's a business in the UK, it's Joel, you take care of that. But since it's a software business, Mansoor is going to be involved alongside you. You know, all the management meetings, all the, all the access with the asset, any sort of customer work, supplier work, that sort of thing. If the two of you think it's super compelling, then we'll talk. And if the three of us are all on side, then we have a good chance at making an investment. So, you know, the investment team here is five. I'm not sure I'd like it to stay as close to what it is today in a, in a world in the future where it's much larger than five, but it's hard to say. You're making these decisions day by day, person by person. Um, but I will tell you that the the uh, it's hard to study this indus- industry, the success cases, because they're all private. You know, like you can go study every public firm and there's some, there's been some issue, some challenge, some cultural hijacking that's gone on uh, over their career arc of that firm to, to the point today where it's not recognizable compared to what it was when it, you know, was early on. So we're trying to learn both what not to do, but also adopt some best practices that we've all encountered at, at firms that we've worked at previously. And where my mind goes as I listen to your response is about the goes to retention. And so, you know, the, the typical path of is for someone is they're an analyst and then they eventually want to become a PM. But there's this reality that there are only so many portfolio manager roles available any, at any firm or in the entire industry. How have you thought about pe- keeping people engaged and contributing even when even if there's not an obvious promotion path or PM path in front of them? Yeah, I think. I think one important one, which is at the at the cultural fit stage, is how do you want to win? Do you want to win individually or do you want to win as a team? 
um, and and just conveying and because I've I've played I've played this investment sport as an individual and I've also been a part of some really high caliber teams and then I've been on a team where everybody was an individual and so you, you see all these different ways and it just became very clear to me that you know we all need to be you know like one one firm P and L everybody here is an owner let's make sure that that is just table stakes and clear out of the gate we're trying to build terminal value in this business we're not trying to be well compensated along the way so um culturally just finding people who can you know want to get better want to work with people and respect each other who they think make them better and are willing to kind of always look at themselves first so i think one of the things to answer your question we don't have analysts and pms here we have investors and lead investors because separating the analyst from the pm it's like okay you do some of the low value work and then i'll make the decision and that's sort of how i see that uh framework of you're the analyst analyzing the information and then i'll make a decision with your information we have investors here who are both uh you know we call it task to make us smart but also make us money everybody here has the responsibility of both but depending on where they're at in their career you can still have a really fantastic uh career progression here if you're still in the make us smart stage it's really hard to make people in the investment business smart like you can go distill information very quickly in today's age it's uh information is is essentially a commodity it's what you do with that information that adds value so everybody is responsible to make us smart and make us money i think the difference is lead investors have a track record of being able to make investment decisions that add value above you know all other opportunities so some people may may be exceptional at making us smart but may not have that proven ability to make us money there's still a fantastic future for them here so uh, and they're very involved in all aspects of the investment diligence as well as the investment decision making and a lot of your philosophies and your the cultural things that are important to you and the way you speak you know are, speak to a differentiated way of thinking and you know as i think about the path of someone who's starting the, a firm in the you know in the last couple of years and trying to compete in a, in a very crowded space i'm interested in 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 about like how you've thought to differentiate yourself within the world of small caps international small cap whatever whatever the competitive set that you're looking at and 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 with that and and within that is the the obvious question of allocators how do you differentiate yourself with, within the allocator community you know, when, when I say the word differentiation, where where does where does that take you, and 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 where what's the what has been the strategy to try to do that as you've as you've been building Langdon? Um, to be honest, I think it's a byproduct of of our approach. Like, I'm not sure we would we would uh, tell you that we're different or tell you you know specifically how we're different. I can tell you some of the things that we think are critical to our success. And, and then I think what I've, the feedback we get from allocators is, you know, where are the aspects that are unique and different and, and that they aren't uh, finding that common among our peers. And certainly we study a number of, of very successful firms who do what we do. Um, I think first and foremost, being independent and investment led narrows the field. Um, it doesn't shrink it to only success, but 
just you've eliminated, I think, some of the real issues around principal agent uh, in our industry that can cause long-term pain for allocators and and for for clients. Um, another one is you know the fact that, and this is one that I probably didn't appreciate was was as misunderstood as it is. But when when people with experience go to do something from scratch, you know it's almost like the industry is set up not to support them. A lot of big firms, a lot of big, you know, plans will say, you know, you need three years and $500 million and a team of 10 that's never had any turnover and then give us a call. It's like, okay, you know, that, that isn't um, necessarily going to mean you're a, an early adopter of, of any of these, you know, newer firms. And I think we distinguish between new firms and new investment talent because I think that's an important one. You need experience, but you may not have experience at the the name above the door that you're currently at. Um, so I think that's one uh, aspect. Um, sorry, I forget the question. Oh, just just differentiation and how how do you position yourself, right? Like people see so many different pitches, and we're long term. We care about price. You were concentrated, like. You you walk around the 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 streets of Omaha and you <laughs> during the Berkshire meeting and you run into a lot of people who look a lot like yourself and so I've just started to think about how do you especially as you're starting a new firm how do you position yourself to be successful given that you know the ideas that you are espousing are nuanced but not necessarily proprietary. Yeah. Um, the, the two that we sort of knew were necessary preconditions to, to even attempting were people and, and structure. Because I think if you get those foundational principles approximately correct or, or really correct, ideally, you're going to have a much better chance of being successful. And so I think that's where we talked about Pinnacle. We talked about the group of people that we've assembled as critical to our long-term success. In terms of the investment uh, decision-making itself, um, we've tried to to skew the odds in our favor a couple ways. One is focus on industries that we think companies largely control their own destiny. So, you know, 80, 90% of our clients' capital is in consumer, industrials, financials, and software. And just not trying to be all things to all people. doesn't mean there aren't great companies in these other sectors, but it's an enormous universe. And let's, let's narrow the focus to something more manageable. But by design, we, didn't, we don't screen based on quantitative output. We don't have ROICs above X and growth rates above Y. And I think if you do that, you're just um, narrowing the field of play at any given moment to a subset of companies that might fit that criteria for a bunch of reasons that make sense, but a bunch of reasons that don't make sense. And my favorite one is always a great long-term track record that has made a large acquisition such that the returns on capital have gone from 30% to 10%. But they have a real credible plan and a team to deliver incrementals to get them back to that 30. But since you wanted above 12, you never found that company or you found it at the wrong time. So what we did there, which again, universally, the allocator client community has told us we're nuts, is we just met all of them. We, we spent at least an hour on over 5,000 companies in almost eight years because we just said, why don't we just meet them all? And, and it might seem hard and it might make uh, for a very busy next little while. But if we truly are doing this for a long time, you know, everyone on the investment team is in their 30s still. What's six years? Then we'll have a data set of over 5,000 companies and we know what we thought about them at the time that we met them, why we maybe moved them forward, why we didn't. 
Um, and so I think it goes back to that point I made earlier about unwilling to do the hard things. It wasn't easy. It wasn't wasn't like it was mentally taxing. It was just time intensive. Um, and so, you know, we've done that and and not tried to rely on the, we've not outsourced the IP to Bloomberg or FactSet in terms of like how, how we shrink the world to our manageable list of 250 companies. Um, and I think you can only do that with a certain type of group. People who are just wired and curious about businesses and people and investing. Um, and I think you know, those would be some of the the reasons that I think have have led to our ability to to outperform. And it's it's interesting you talk about decision making. You 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 basically employ a team tackle um, in terms of some of your ideas. How else have you tried to mitigate the inevitable behavioral biases that come in when you're making decisions? Uh, under uncertainty, any other things that you are cognizant of from your history or um, as you were designing the process and philosophy that speak to just the inevitable um, kind of human foibles that, that really can prevent you from being successful? Yeah, I think by by trying our very best to not be futurists and, and just making sure that everybody knows it's okay to walk out of a meeting and go, I don't, I don't know what they do. I don't understand that. I don't get that, you know, explanation or the third time I've met them and I'm still unclear, you know, why their customers sign with them. Like just some sort of like sufficient level of humility to be able to just say like, whether you call it a too hard bucket or we just, there's not this like, you know, egotistical arm wrestle required of like, oh, you're not smart. You don't, you didn't, you don't know this. You don't know that. I, I think that's a, a bit of a fool's errand in investing. When you embrace, and and maybe this is unique to smaller companies, but it's such a big pond. So part of the reason we we spent an hour, at least an hour, on all those five thousand is because you'd be shocked how little information we could gather in an hour in some of those cases. So why are we going to go commission three months of work if in an hour we we couldn't really figure much out that was helpful? That's its own tool to help us help guide incremental return on time, which in, in investing is is as important, if not you know maybe second to return on capital. Uh, so we think about both of those things, and uh, and I think that's been you know pretty helpful in uh, in getting to this point. In um, I'm interested in 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 that as you're whittling down that list, like how, how does how does that work? Do you, 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 whatever you toss, I don't know, 60% immediately. And then there's another, there's, there's 40% remaining. And then you like, you have tranches and then, and then at, at a certain point you do a deep dive, like where, how does that all, how does that work? And what is, what does that data set look like now that you whittled it down? Yeah, it's, it, it, you just one day realize that like, Hey, we're going to get there. It felt like this, this, you know, initially, to be honest, it felt like, busy work for interns. That's how it kind of was conceived. It was like, oh, well, we have two interns every semester and we want them engaged in investment work. We don't want them going to do things that are not helpful. Why don't we get them started on that? And then it was real, uh, it was right after that, that we realized like, A, they're not the right people to be filling out these, you know, this template and B, um, the value in filling out the template is super high. So let's, let's maybe work with them on that. Um, and so, 
it, it really was one at a time. And then all of a sudden you're more than halfway done and then you're three quarters and then it feels like you're there. And now what we do every quarter is we rerun the same, you know, 23 countries, market cap restriction, liquidity restriction and sectors. And we just look at what's net new. What have we not looked at that is there today that hasn't been there historically? We compare it to the um, to the database that that is uh, in place. And um, in terms of what we decide to move forward, it, we, we think of our funnel as ex- extremely broad top of funnel within those core regions and core sectors, but then extremely discerning on what to move forward. Because if you knew in advance that something's going to take you like one to six months, that's a pretty high uh, opportunity cost when you're a team of investment team of five. So, you know, we, we've, but everybody here understands like no one's measured on velocity of output. It's quality of output. The, 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 the strategies are structured that way. 27 holdings, five individuals, you know, bringing two ideas in 2023 that could be, you know, very, very meaningful uh, is, is, is all that's required. So think about every January, I've got to find two great ideas this year. Like it's a very freeing um, place to start. And I think that allows for the resource intensity required to make these great long-term investment decisions. And I think going back to your earlier question on how do we make sure people are working together is everybody is an owner of the business, but also an owner of the product. So if we are underweight the U.S. and overweight Europe, we don't have a U.S. lead who's going, oh, man, well, I'm not going to last very long at this place. Like He's going, oh, I I agree. I think that incremental opportunity in France is way more interesting than the last business that I brought forward. It's It's not on anyone individually. We have everybody working across each other's ideas. We travel to different parts of the world together. This year, we all did New York. Last year, we all did... The Nordics, um, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. So we're taking meetings together in different parts of the world to make sure that we all have like a common understanding of what good looks like. And I think that really helps people advocate for the best ideas and not necessarily their own ideas. And it sounds like you've developed a very strong foundation where, where it's the philosophy, the process, the team building aspect. Um, and, and obviously having a partner backing you is, is, is helpful as well. So as you look out over the next call it seven years, I don't know if that's quite long enough for your time horizon, but let's just call it seven to 10 years. What, what would you like Langdon to look like? Um, and, and, you know, what does success look like to you? Yeah, success is, you know, Hall of Fame returns and, and world-class service. And and I know uh, on a very limited set of products, like the, the products that we launched out of the gate are two, you know, strategies where I have, you know, 10 and at the time, 10 and seven years of historical experience to say, like, I'm pretty confident that A, these are great asset classes that we're, if we're successful and capable we will harvest, you know, very strong returns for our clients. Um, but B, they're also like very durable asset classes where we aren't like offering some sort of single point solution to a client that, you know, they're going to need to trade around us because we're good in, you know, when we've got a full moon and we're not so good, uh, you know, every third Wednesday. Like just, I think our historical um, reputation was one of just being all weather. 
you know, and, and some of the things that people would say over the years would be, you know, your portfolio is very eclectic, or I've never heard of any of these companies. And we take those as, as terms of endearment. And, you know, deliberately, we would point out to clients or potential clients, like there are stocks in our portfolio that are 10 times earnings. And there are stocks that are 10 times sales. So we do not care if, you know, we have a 2022 or a 2021 or a 2023 or a 2008. Like our job is to deliver investment outperformance over a reasonable time frame without taking on too much risk. And it, we will diversify certain risks away, but what we cannot diversify away is the idiosyncratic risk in the individual companies that we own. So if we, if we select them carefully, we can mitigate some of that risk, but we can't diversify it to zero. And, and personally, and as a team, we're wired to see volatility as opportunity. And so it's interesting to me that every time we go through a period that we're in right now, the whole world gravitates back to public markets. You know, a year or two ago, it was like, how quickly could I diversify my portfolio away from public markets? Public markets are like, you know, the stuff that our parents bought. But now it's all about alternatives and private credit, private real estate, venture capital, you name it. And where are those people now making investments? Public markets. So um, the fact that we can offer daily liquidity, price certainty, and transparency are actual long-term, I think, uh, beneficial guardrails for end clients that are timeless. People don't know when they're going to get divorced. People don't know when they're going to find that perfect house. If you have 12-year lockups or two-year lockups, like there are definite benefits, don't get me wrong, but there are also significant drawbacks. And I think any, anyways, I'm off on a tangent, but as any asset class matures, you just want to make sure both the good and the bad are well understood. And I think the, uh, the way we've set up Langdon is such that in seven years, we hopefully have delivered on our value proposition of these two strategies and have earned the rights from clients to potentially launch and offer other strategies that fit within that mid cap to micro cap, you know, framework where our research approach and uh, research process give us unique advantage to harvest outsized returns. And, you know, you, you talk about creating a, a product that's durable and kind of all weather and, I, I do love that that compliment. Like we've never seen any, we've never heard of these companies. To me, that's a that's a that's exactly what you want to hear from your investors. But in in terms of you know the the opportunity set that you see in front of you to outperform to find unique companies, like what, what do you think is most underappreciated about that the the set of companies and that universe that you've identified um, to go after at Langdon? Well, I think I'll start with us as individuals because I think they're both important. I think the first thing is, you know, having experience in hard times is critical because I think, you know, and I, I, I still say this, you know, coming into the investment world professionally, basically in the middle of the financial crisis was super instructive because I think for the previous eight years, it was all about the income statement. People didn't care about the balance sheet. And I walked into investing and it was like balance sheet, balance sheet, balance sheet, balance sheet. And then maybe two years later, it was, you know, some mix of income statement, balance sheet and cash flow statement. But for those people who maybe got, you know, brought into the industry at the wrong time or were mentored by people who had made their careers only focusing on the income statement, you know, that tail left tail event occurs. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, 
it's it's a career ender. It's a firm ender. So you know, coming in squarely focused on what could go wrong still benefits me today, and I think benefits our team. And so we look for companies that have that muscle memory too. You know, we we don't really care how well you did when times were great. We're super laser focused on understanding the, how your business performed when your end market was terrible or when cost of capital was high. And so the environment that we're in today is great because it allows us to test much more real time. We don't have to go back to 2001 or 1994. We can go back to last year. We can go back to last October and say, what did you do when freight rates went 10x from Europe to Asia and you know glass prices tripled and energy prices were 10x and you know how did it how did it go how did it work and and even better than asking we were there we were on the ground asking them questions seeing their you know reactions to stuff and so um highly unlikely we're going to put money with a team that isn't tested or in a business model that isn't proven just not what we think our clients hire us to do so i think this investment uh landscape favors people who are good at like true primary research and and have relationships and access to actually go leverage those things to determine what's really happening because i don't think the newspapers or the internet are necessarily responsible for truth telling so you'll hear some sort of headline that you know luxury watch sales are at you know are down 26% year over year. It's like, yeah, well, last quarter, they're flat with last quarter. So like things aren't getting worse. They're just lower than they were in the free money era. And so the narrative around some of these data points totally misconstrues the reality of the situation. So when we can go walk to walk into seven stores in three countries and see how busy they are, that gives us a nice counterpoint to some sort of like Bloomberg automation headline that was grabbed as some economic data came out. Um, and so, you know, I think this is sort of the perfect setup for us. It's a lot of volatility, very high cost of capital, very high cost of failure, and a, and a big cohort of management teams that have never been in this environment before. So, you know, the, the, the delta between the haves and the have-nots is super wide. And that, I think, plays to our strengths of trying to invest in resilient companies, avoid leverage, and focus on cash returns on invested capital. People have... I think we'll quickly forget adjusted EBITDA, but you know, for most of the last 10 years, it was all that mattered. Yes, as, as we all would hope that the number of adjustments that we all have to wade through <laughs> disappears over time if people focus on cash. Uh, Greg, this, this has been incredible. I think you've built in a very interesting structure and foundation at Langdon, and we're going to be watching carefully as you try to hit those Hall of Fame returns. So thanks for being on Compounders, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Ben. As a as a first time uh, listener, and now ultimately uh, someone who's been listening for many years, I appreciate it. Thank you.